Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 53 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Traub. Dr. Traub graduated from National College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1981. He was board certified in 2007 by the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology and is medical director of Lokai Health Center and Hawaii Integrative Oncology in Kalua, Kona, Hawaii. Dr. Traub served as president of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians from 2001 to 2003 and in 2006 received the AANP Physician of the Year Award. He is the author of Essentials of Dermatologic Diagnosis and Integrative Therapeutics. He is an avid amateur triathlete and has practiced meditation and non-duality for over 40 years. Today we're talking about the impact that the health of your gut can have on your skin. We talk about the gut-skin axis and why common conditions like acne, rosacea, psoriasis, eczema and skin cancer can be a sign that you have SIBO or another underlying gut issue. We also talk about what we should be treating first, the skin or the gut or SIBO if you have it. As someone that suffered terribly from horrific acne for so many years in my teens, I really am very passionate about this topic because I know it firsthand what impact poor skin or skin that makes you feel less than your best can have on you. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Michael Traub. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Michael Traub. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's beautiful to be here with you. And we're going to be talking all about SIBO and skin and something that I have personally lived with for many, many years, skin issues. And I'm so fascinated about how the health of our gut can often be displayed on our skin. But before we get sort of started on that topic, I'd love to talk about how you got into naturopathic medicine and uh, and how you find yourself to be, uh, you know, working in beautiful Hawaii today and, um, and really helping people with digestive issues. Well, my father was a dermatologist. My mother was a nurse. So I grew up wanting to be a doctor. And um, unfortunately, I grew up in Southern California and I had a very standard American diet. And I developed really severe acne as a teenager and it really affected me. It made me very kind of inhibited and self-conscious. Um, and it was very ironic because my father was a dermatologist. And he sent me to his partner who uh, basically used every treatment available at that time um, to try to help, including giving me tetracycline, which caused my teeth to get discolored, and giving me x-ray therapy, which led to many skin cancers later in life, um, and none of it really helped. But the, the good thing was that in my last year of high school, um, I fell in love really for the first time, and just the beauty of having somebody who cared for me and who 
I loved deeply really seemed to help me and my skin cleared up. And so I credit her with the cure to my acne. <laughs> so Wow. Um, then we went off to college, to two different colleges, and our relationship ended because we were apart. And in my first year at university, I was pre-med, um, I got involved with a group of people who were um, trying to go to anti-war protests to the, you know, for the Vietnam War was still going on then, and, to, and keep them from getting violent. You know, it was kind of ironic when peace protests would get violent. So um, I kind of jumped in with them and did, did that. And then we planned to do an act of civil disobedience to protest the war and got arrested on purpose. And um, that ultimately affected my ability to get into medical school as I had to um, explain you know, any convictions on my record. And at the time, I didn't think it was going to hurt me because I thought it was a evidence of my humanitarian values and so forth. But I was very naive, and the medical school applications didn't see that that way. So um, the friend, my friends were, many of them were vegetarians and eating pretty healthy. And so at that time, my, my diet began to change. And ultimately, I found out about naturopathic medical school and decided to go there. And when I first started, there was this common concept that food combining was very important and that if you ate this with that, it wasn't going to digest well. And I got, kind of got caught up in being concerned about that to the, to the extent that it began to affect my digestion. And I began to have you know, symptoms of what we would call irritable bowel syndrome, where I would have discomfort and bloating and it affected my bowel movements. And so that was kind of my introduction to having gut issues. And finally, it didn't take me too long, but I figured out that the problem was not what I was eating, what foods I was combining really wasn't the issue. It was how I was feeling uh, you know, about my food when I sat down to eat it and the worry that was affecting my gut. So I let that idea go and started just sitting down and blessing my food and being relaxed and meditating for a few minutes and I could eat whatever I wanted again and I was fine. So that actually, um, you know, was a real lesson for me about how much our psychological state can affect our digestion. And from then on, you know, I, I, I was beginning to meditate and practice yoga, which I've continued to do all my life. And I really haven't had any significant gut issues from that time. So unlike many people who have an interest in SIBO um, or digestive disorders, I'm, you know, that's, that's the extent of my experience. And, but as a doctor, of course, I've seen many, many people who have suffered from what I used to think was irritable bowel syndrome, and I knew it was stress-related, and I would work with them with their diet, but we didn't always get the kind of results that, you know, one would want. And so about four years ago, I started hearing about this condition, and it got, caught my interest. I was very impressed with the people I was learning from, like Dr. Seebecker and Dr. Sandberg-Lewis in Portland. And it made sense that there was this underlying, you know, imbalance in the flora of the small intestine that was causing these GI symptoms. And so I started recognizing this in my patients. And my initial experience with treating people was phenomenal. I mean, these were people who had, you know, long-standing gut issues. And by testing them, diagnosing them with SIBO and treating them, you know, they felt better than they had in many, many years. And so that was very rewarding for me and my patients. And um, unfortunately, it kind of gave me a overly optimistic um, perspective on treating this condition because I've subsequently found out that, found out that it's not only common but, and, and underlies the majority of irritable bowel syndrome cases, but it's, it, it's a chronic condition and it takes time with most people to manage the symptoms to the point where they're no longer a problem. And I know that in your own history, I think you were fortunate to be able to recover relatively quickly. And so I think, however, that in my experience with patients, that's the, that's the minority and that in general requires multiple courses of treatment and 
and uh, working with the diet and you know the other aspects of care that are needed in order to really get a full recovery. So that's kind of my story and my experience with treating SIBO. My, my, my focus in my practice is actually oncology. I still have a primary care practice and I'm very interested in dermatology as a result of my you know, father's career. Um, but uh, because of my expertise in dermatology, I've focused to a certain extent on the, this connection between the gut and the skin. And that's, I think, primarily what we're here to talk about today. It is. And uh, something that I lived with um, a lot of skin issues in my younger years. And I now can see that there was a very strong correlation between what was happening in my gut and what was happening on my skin. So can we can we just sort of talk about how that occurs? Like, is the health of our gut mirrored on our skin? It is. I don't think that it's necessarily as simple as that because the underlying immune dysfunction of many of these skin conditions that have a connection with SIBO is complicated. It's not, it's not just straightforward. Um, it, it's, it's complex. So um, I think that to go back a little bit, um, it was almost 100 years ago, back in the 1930s, that there were two well-known dermatologists. Their names were John Stokes and Donald Pillsbury, and they actually proposed a gastrointestinal mechanism for the overlap between um, psychological states like depression and anxiety and skin, condi skin conditions such as acne. And they, they thought that emotional states might alter the normal intestinal flora, what we now call the microbiota, and that it might increase the permeability of the intestine, you know, what we commonly call leaky gut, and that this could contribute, contribute to systemic inflammation. And now many aspects of this gut-brain-skin unifying theory have been validated, and the role of the intestinal microbiome and oral pro probiotics to to mediate the, the systemic inflammation and oxidative stress and blood sugar control um, and the content of fats in tissues and even mood have really important implications in acne and in other skin conditions. Um, just taking acne as an example, there's a kind of a vicious cycle that can be established between psychological distress, whether it be worry or depression, um, in combination with a high-fat diet and processed foods that don't have much fiber that can cause alterations to the uh, gut motility and to the profile of the bacteria in the gut. And this can lead to a loss of the normal biofilm sometimes that can then cause the intestinal permeability and allow toxins to get access to the, um, the, blood, the, the blood. And that can increase the burden of inflammation and oxidative stress. And in those who are genetically susceptible to acne, this kind of cascade of events can increase the likelihood of then having the excess oil in the oil glands produced and making the acne worse and causing additional psychological distress. So it becomes a vicious cycle. And so we, we, we know that probiotics and antimicrobial agents can play a role in cutting, cutting off this cycle at the gut level. And that way we can address acne by treating this disruption of the gut. Mm, I, I wish... Uh, doctors had known about that when I was going through this. I developed acne at 11 and probably by the time I turned 12, I had terrible acne. It was all over my face, neck, chest, arms and all over my back. So, you know, literally half my body was covered in very cystic acne and the very common treatment, and it still seems to be today, that um, I was put on multiple rounds of antibiotics by the doctors and um, nothing worked 
And like you say, there was the enormous amount of psychological stress that goes with it. I was at an all-girls school here in Melbourne, Australia, and you know anything that sets you apart is a great cause for bullying. So I was bullied just horrendously because of my skin, which makes it worse. And then I would, you know, eat junk food because I felt so bad about myself and I'd go and eat the junk food and then I'd feel worse. And it was a really, really horrible cycle that lasted for many years until I went on to Roaccutan, which is a very powerful um, drug, which did clear up the acne. But, you know, I often wonder what did that do to me um, after, you know, basically putting a nuclear bomb inside my body um and i and i do hear from people um in the SIBO world lots of SIBO patients who often talk about how their acne has really flared up with their SIBO progressing or or getting worse or that the SIBO isn't under control and that they're really seeing this this flare occurring on their skin um, so if somebody is in active treatment for SIBO and their acne has really flared up and they don't feel that it is actually improving with their treatment, do you, you know, what, how would you suggest that they approach it? Well, I think it's important when you have both a gut issue and a skin issue um, coexisting and probably contributing to each other that you address both at the same time and that, you know, uh, uh, the the vitamin A derivative that you took for your acne that was effective is really a wonder drug um, and is probably the most uh, important drug that's ever been invented for dermatology because it was it's so effective but it, it does have potential side effects and it the, the the main one being that it can cause birth defects and so if young women take it like you and become pregnant the risk of having a, a, a baby with congenital problems is really high. And so it has to be very carefully um, prescribed and a woman of childbearing years has to be on two methods of birth control while she's taking it. And so it's, um, you know, it, it's a very, very effective drug for cystic acne, but it's also a very dangerous one. So um, it turns out that before that drug was invented, uh, dermatologists were just using high doses of vitamin A. And then they found out that, you know, not only was that effective, but if they tweaked it and made a synthetic version of vitamin A, that they could patent it as a drug and it would, you know, be sold as a prescription and make money for the drug company. And so that's what happened. But when I have somebody who has severe acne, I use high dose vitamin A therapy and it works very well. And if it is a woman of childbearing years, then I, you know, make sure that she knows that she cannot, under any circumstances, become pregnant while she's taking the high-dose vitamin A. But it works just as well as the drug, and it doesn't seem to have any side effects. I've used this safely for many years. And so that's my uh, first-line therapy for severe acne. Um, we've learned... And is that um, topical, or is that taken... No, is that ingested? It's, taken, it's, in, it's taken internally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've learned, you know, in the last 15 years or so that diet does play a huge role in the causation of acne. And we know that uh, milk products are probably the primary driver of acne and that um, sugar and simple carbohydrates are also a very important driver of the underlying hormonal uh, and inflammatory disturbances that uh, are going on with acne. So, you know, the, the diet definitely needs to be addressed too. And, it, you know, if a person has SIBO, they're already avoiding, you know, fermentable carbohydrates. So that helps. Mm, definitely. And it's so interesting you say that because I was following that very standard Western diet of low-fat, high-carb, um, I had a very sweet tooth in those years, so lots of sugar and, um, you know, I was, I didn't really like meat. So I was, you know, I didn't eat a lot of meat. We ate a reasonable amount of vegetables, but way too many carbs and sugar for yeah. my system. And no wonder, no yeah. wonder <laughs> I had such terrible acne. Yeah. And at the, at, at the time, I mean, this is, um, you know, gosh, 30 years ago. Uh, doctors were saying that 
diet had no correlation to what was happening on my skin right. and that yeah. all I could do was was do antibiotics. So we didn't know in those days that changing my diet would have had such a significant impact. Whereas I think that these days, um, you know, people are, are, are more up to speed with the importance that diet plays. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a, a lady, um, you know, I put, I always put a call out for questions and, um, whenever I'm interviewing somebody and, and a lady wrote, uh, to me saying that her daughter was having a lot of skin issues, but she had, she just could not kick the sugar. So if someone's sort of listening and they're thinking, oh gosh, it's the, you know, sugar, okay, but they feel like they just can't kick it. Do you have any advice on how to move away from the evil white stuff? (laughs) Have you ever had a relationship with somebody who you really love, but it was not a a healthy relationship? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I talk to my patients about breaking up with sugar. You know, it, it, there's there's some really nice things about sugar, but there's some really unnice things about sugar, and it's it it's almost like breaking up. You know, it's almost like leaving a relationship that, in some ways, has been wonderful, and in other ways, is not so wonderful. And so it's it when you and when you break up with somebody, usually it's best to just kind of, you know completely break loose for a while and have have no no contact and kind of get used to who you are without them and and have a have a you know a, a cool down period you know rather than jumping into another relationship and i think that the same thing is true with sugar is that it's best to just um really 100 percent avoid it for a period of time and let your body get used to that and not try to continue to feed the desire for sweet things by using things like stevia um, and and just under, you know learn to love the natural sweetness of whole foods rather than foods that have been had had sweeteners added to them I really love that analogy Michael and it uh, it really sings true for me having had a sweet tooth for you know so much of my life and and in fact coming off the back of my month in the states and Canada where just by virtue of being out of the out of my home my kitchen I ate way more carbohydrates and therefore added sugar than I would normally eat and I got back to Australia feeling pretty ordinary just from having so much processed food because I was constantly flying all over the place so I've gone I'm I am an all or nothing person so I'm back into a very strict um, low carb high fat way of eating and strictly no sugar because I could see that the sugar was becoming an issue for me again and I, the first few days, it's it's really like a relationship breakup. I my body was mourning the the sugar. <laughs> I was having intense cravings from it. Mm-hmm. Someone, I live in an apartment complex. Someone was baking something sweet, and I was nearly licking their front door. I could <laughs> smell it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, where is that sweetness coming from? Um, but the first few days are just the first few days, and I knew it was going to. I was probably going to have some cravings, and I'd just get up and I'd go for a walk and I'd go and drink a glass of water and I'd put a song on and sing really loudly uh, to just distract myself. And now that I'm through the worst of that, I was chopping up some vegetables um, the other morning. I love to make a big vegetable stir fry with some, some form of protein in the morning. And I bit into one of my pieces of carrot and I was thinking, oh, how gorgeous and sweet is this carrot? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when all of that artificial or processed sugar is out of your diet, you, you're some, it's amazing how sweet real food actually can taste. Yes. And the carrot to me tasted almost like, you know, a sugary thing because yeah. it was so fresh and sweet. It was organic. It was gorgeous. And I'm there going, mmm, amazing carrot. <laughs> but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't taste that if I was still having the sugar in my diet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add that I think in, in my experience when I've broken a habit, whether it's sweets or coffee, you know, it, it's like many other habits, even exercise. Um, if you're trying to establish a new habit of exercising regularly, it usually takes about three weeks to, you know, either break a bad habit or start a new one uh, and kind of get free of a bad habit and or have a new habit that's healthy like exercise be 
something that it becomes automatic and you know it's not such a struggle to kind of push yourself to to whatever you're doing mm. and I, i'm a few weeks into my um more rigid way of eating uh and i it's now just half of the course for me i'm not thinking about sugar i'm not interested in it at all it's not it's not I'm not getting the cravings and it definitely becomes a lot easier and I have a, a great um, system that keeps me on track and I tick I, I like I really need to gamify things for myself and so I have a daily chart and I tick it off and that really helps me psychologically to see that I'm taking a step forward every day um, and so I think finding the thing that works for you if you need if you feel that you need that extra motivation um, you know ticking off a list or I've got um, star stickers that I stick on my on my I've got a big poster that I've put up in my wardrobe so I see it every day um, and it's literally you know yes you are achieving all of the things you want to do that will keep you moving towards health and that I find very motivational because it's all lit, lots of little things rather than one giant thing it's all the little things you do every day that keep you staying healthy or healthier than if you right. don't do yep. lots of little I things I yeah. feel and so I tick them off and I it's like being a school child I give myself a star sticker for good work <laughs> but it works for me and and I think finding what works for you is a really I'm great gonna, way I'm to keep your motivation. make a little plug for your your cookbook the first recipe that I made was um, the one that where you use coconut flour to make these little like pancakes mm-hmm and I loved them. They were, they were, they'd had just a faint little sweet flavor. I think I used just the tiniest bit of honey, but they were, they were wonderful. And it really doesn't take, you know, much um, sweetness to uh, be able to enjoy something like that and not, not set yourself back in any way. Exactly. I'd like to talk about some of the other um, skin. Uh, conditions and diseases that one might see um, appear that may also be correlated to uh, compromised gut health. So we've talked about acne. What are some other things that people may experience? Well, probably the condition that I have clinically seen the most benefit from treating SIBO is rosacea. And it used to be that rosacea was called acne, you know, rosacea, but rosacea really is a totally different uh, condition than acne, and it should not be confused with, you know, you know, acne itself. Um, we're not exactly sure what the connection is between SIBO and rosacea, but the connection is 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 really um, robust. Evidence from Studies in Europe suggest that SIBO may be present in about 50% of patients who have rosacea. And for those listeners who don't know about rosacea, it's that condition where patients have really um, rosy, red, flushed, blushed cheeks, and sometimes it affects the nose as well. It mostly affects people who have some Celtic ancestry, um, so there's definitely a genetic predisposition to this. And Basically, the little blood vessels under the skin, the capillaries, are hyperactive and um, really prone to uh, dilating when that person is exposed to heat or when they eat hot foods or spicy foods. And, you know, these people often will really flush and blush when they get overheated or even mildly heated or when they eat hot food. And so... Um, there have actually been some randomized studies that have suggested that the main prescription antibiotic that we use to treat SIBO, rifaximin, um, really leads to significant improvement in uh, over 90% of patients who have rosacea and SIBO. Um, and these, these kinds of results in that study are also supported by other studies of patients with rosacea who were tre treated for SIBO. So that is very, very impressive. But unfortunately, we don't have a really you know, clear understanding of what the connection is between those two conditions. Another kind of common um, skin condition is psoriasis. And 
again, in one study about 10 years ago, um, it showed that 60% of patients with psoriasis had malabsorption versus less than 5% of patients without psoriasis based on a test of malabsorption called the D-Xylose test. And those 60% of patients who had psoriasis were then tested for SIBO with um, breath tests, and 21% of those tested positive. And when they were treated with the uh, rifaximin or another antibiotic, it normalized their absor absorption and it also improved their skin condition. So psoriasis is another condition that seems to benefit from treatment of SIBO if that's coexisting. Gluten-free diet also benefits many patients with psoriasis and there is a connection between psoriasis and celiac disease in a small percentage of patients. Um, eczema is a, you know, after acne is probably, you know, the most um, common other skin condition that we see between, you know, besides skin cancers, which I'll get to also. But um, with eczema, um, it often starts in infancy and in childhood. And it may be that an imbalance of the intestinal microbiota in infancy from antibiotics or from actually paradoxically too clean of an environment where the immune system uh, develops in, in a particular way because it's not being exposed enough to microorganisms, um, that can, that's a recognized risk factor for eczema. And staph infection also frequently com complicates eczema, which, you know, uh, as a bacteria is a normal component of our skin microbiome in small amounts, but people who have eczema tend to have overgrowth of staph and it causes secondary infection. And then there's a couple other conditions. One is urticaria, which we commonly refer to as hives. And again, a fair percentage of patients with chronic hives have SIBO and improve when that SIBO is, test, is treated. And lastly, there's a condition that used to be called scleroderma, but now it's referred to as systemic sclerosis. And this is a very serious systemic condition that causes fibrosis and <clears throat> scarring of multiple organs, including the skin and the digestive tract. And it leads to malabsorption and it can lead to kind of a pseudo-obstruction of the, of the intestines. And so this results in malnutrition in these patients, and it's one of the most common causes of death from this condition. In fact, people with systemic sclerosis um, have a 50% mortality rate after uh, eight, eight and a half years if they have malabsorption just from you know being malnourished. So... These, type, these patients with systemic sclerosis who have had SIBO diagnosed, um, actually about 50% of, of these patients have SIBO too. Um, so the eradication of SIBO in these patients has also led to significant improvement in their GI symptoms. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey guys, do you feel completely overwhelmed when it comes to figuring out what you can eat that's suitable for a SIBO diet? I know that I felt so overwhelmed at the start of my SIBO journey. And let's be honest, eating for SIBO can be challenging. It can downright suck at points. You've already got so much going on. You've got your treatments. You're trying to remember to take all your medications and your supplements and not to mention all of the daily symptoms that you have to experience. The pain, the bloating, the constipation or diarrhea or both. 
and the brain fog and exhaustion. The list just goes on. Having someone else take that hassle away from you for planning your food can make your day just that little bit easier. And this is where I've come to your rescue. I've developed SIBO meal plans just for you. They take all of the stress away from planning your SIBO daily food intake. They're based on the SIBO biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacobi, and each meal plan is just for the specific phase it relates to. So you may be on phase one restricted, or phase one semi-restricted, or phase two reduce and repair, and there is a meal plan just for you. We've got 14 days of SIBO-friendly meals and recipes included. There's weekly shopping lists. There's handy hints and tips to make cooking easier. And every recipe is 100% gluten-free. The recipes are low-grain. We only use a little bit of rice or quinoa in the recipes depending on what phase you're following, of course. All the recipes are low carbohydrate, very low dairy, low sugar, and there are low FODMAP options included. The great news is that you can download it instantly and you can get cooking today. If you'd like to know more about the SIBO meal plans, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen meal hyphen plans or head to the show notes from today's episode and just click on the link there. I hope you enjoy the meal plans, guys. I know it's going to save you so much time, energy and effort and help you be compliant to your SIBO diet as you go through your treatment. Now let's get back to the show. Mmm, that's fascinating. And uh, just talking about hives, hives were something that were part and parcel of my daily life for many years. And as soon as I started my SIBO treatment, I noticed a huge reduction in hives and to the point where it's incredibly rare for me to have a breakout of hives these days, which is great because I used to be covered in them. I was always being put in a pine tarsal bath or having chamomile lotion put on my skin from my mum trying to calm the red flaming itchiness that I was experiencing. I've had some, um, again, because I put a call out for um, questions, I had people ask me about um, lichen sclerosis and also lichen plant, lichen. <laughs> Lichen. How do I say that? Lichen. Lichen. <laughs> Sclerosis and also lichen um, planus and their connection with SIBO. Do you know much about those two? No, it hasn't been reported in the literature. Um, lichen planus is a condition that has some similarities to uh, psoriasis just because of the nature of the changes in the skin that happen with it. Um, they're both uh, categorized as papulosquamous disorders. Um, and, you know, I think my, my belief in these connections between SIBO and the skin con and skin conditions is that I think in most cases it has to do with some common dysfunction of the immune system. And, you know, our, so much of our immune system comes from our gut. And I think that when our gut is disturbed, it alters you know, our immune system and makes us more susceptible to skin conditions. And we don't have this all figured out yet, but that's, that's my, that's my theory about this connection. Lichen sclerosis is a uh, condition that in some ways is like scleroderma or systemic sclerosis because it causes fibrosis of the skin. And I wouldn't be surprised just because of that common mechanism, that, that, that common, uh, uh, abnormality in the skin being sclerosis or, or scarring, fibrosis, that um, lichen sclerosis could have some of the same uh, improvements with treatment uh, for SIBO that systemic sclerosis has. But it hasn't been reported, not even any case studies, you know, because I've thoroughly scoured the, the published medical literature to see a, of any associations with other skin conditions in SIBO. Mm. And what about skin cancers? Do they have a, um, a connection with gut health? Well, they do. Um, 
the skin <clears throat> flora, the microbiota of the skin, impacts skin cancer. We know that there's a strain of Staphylococcus on the skin that is associated with a type of skin cancer called cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. It's not a real common skin cancer, but it is definitely has this association with Staphylococcus on the skin. We also know that beneficial skin bacteria, particularly lactobacillus strains, reduce inflammation in the skin and they enhance what we call immunosurveillance, which is kind of like the, the, the immune cells in our skin that um, circulate there and look for um, damage to the skin, particularly from ultraviolet, which is the main causative agent for skin cancer. And when your immune system notices ultraviolet damage, healthy skin can repair the damage to the DNA in the skin and not allow skin cancers to grow. But if you have a deficiency of lactobacillus species in the skin, then you're more likely to develop skin cancer. So in this case, we're talking about the microbiota of the skin rather than the gut. Mm, fascinating. And what, what comes first? Is it that the skin is, uh, that there are perhaps an immune system uh, that's not working properly that can lead to skin issues and SIBO or is there SIBO presence that then leads to the skin issues? Do you, is there a clear picture on, you know, whether, you know, is it chicken and the egg? What, what came first to cause this disruption? Well, there's a, there's a theory in medicine that's called the hygiene hypothesis. And I, ref, I referred to this when I was talking about eczema. And the hygiene hypothesis uh, basically says that a lack of early childhood exposure to infectious agents and to symbiotic bacteria, like a less diversity of intestinal bacteria, and also parasites can increase the susceptibility to immune dysfunction by suppressing the development of the immune system, the part of the immune system that is supposed to help protect us from these types of immunological uh, changes. Um, and that I think is really probably the, what the, you know, comes first is that there's disruption to the intestinal microbiota that interferes with a healthy development of the immune system. And this hygiene hypothesis was originally presented in 1989 by a British epidemiologist named Strachan. And since that time, there have been many studies that have supported this theory. And so I think, and for example, in the last decades, um, as the incidence of eczema has increased, particularly in young children and in low-income countries like Africa and East Asia and in urban environments, uh, we've seen that the westernization and the industrialization and the uh, change in the diet of indigenous people and their, their uh, less and, and, and them having less exposure to microorganisms than they did historically has made you know, children more susceptible to developing eczema. So that's the way that I look at it. And I think that, you know, there's a more work that needs to be done to kind of substantiate that theory. But I think that it's uh, basically lifestyle and environmental factors that have changed the way that our um, immune system develops when we're young that make us susceptible to these problems. If somebody who's listening to today's interview has a young child or a baby with um, eczema, what, what should they be doing about it to try and help their child? There are two things that are well substantiated in the literature. One is to um, supplement the baby with probiotics. And um, we don't really know yet which strains of probiotic organisms are best. Um, so I can't give any more specifics on that, 
But the other thing is that omega-3 supplementation will reduce the risk and severity of eczema in children as well. And in moms who may um, have a family history of eczema, hay fever, or asthma, because they're all kind of part of the same immune dysfunction, they can supplement these uh, the probiotics and, and omega-3 supplements during pregnancy and reduce their child's risk of developing eczema and these other allergic conditions as well. Mm, that's interesting. I was actually, I've just been away with a, a group of friends and one of the women there has a five-month-old baby who uh, the poor little thing is covered in eczema and I was talking to her about it and he was very disturbed. His face was on fire, the, the poor little thing. And she was saying to me, oh, I used to have terrible eczema as a kid. And I was thinking, well, isn't that interesting? There's, you know, it's a um, connection between her and her baby and you know she's talking about how she experienced it suffered it for years and now her little boy has it as well and um, and she was saying that she her doctor had put her onto a probiotic and she's breastfeeding and so the probiotic um, had helped his eczema to an extent so mm -hmm. that was uh, that was really interesting another thing that parents can do is that they can try to expose their their babies to more microorganisms, you know, like taking them to visit uh, aunt and uncle who live on a farm and let them be in the, you know, in the in the barn with the cows and the pigs and the dogs and the sheep, um, because there's lots of research that suggests that early childhood exposure to you know, the ba the bacteria that are found in these farm animals is actually beneficial for the healthy development of the immune system. And I think this is one of the, the challenges of the a more modern society. If we live in big cities, we often don't have any access to anyone on a farm. And we're living in these very sterile houses and environments. And I know I grew up with a mum who, um, you know, she doesn't particularly like dirt and I didn't like dirt. And so we had a very sterile house. And mm. I, I didn't even really like going outside to play because it was too dirty out there. <laughs> now, that would have been the best thing I could have done for my poor little immune system, but um, I yeah. was inside <laughs> playing with Barbie. <laughs> if, if people don't have you know easy access to going to a farm, is there anything else that we could be doing to help build that diversity in um, exposure to microorganisms? Well, it, sound, it sounds kind of strange, but there is a school of thought in medicine that exposing uh, not just children, but even adults, to various parasites um, uh, like hookworms that can help the immune system uh, either develop more normally or um, re recover balance if it's already out of balance. And so that, that's kind of a, a way out there idea, but there is, there is research suggesting that that can be helpful. Um, obviously, you know, not using antibiotics unless they're absolutely necessary can be another major factor that we all run into throughout the course of our life. A question I had from somebody around the use of antibiotics, they, they were wondering whether their use of long-term antibiotics for their acne treatment had caused their SIBO because they felt that they had not had any SIBO-type symptoms present prior to the antibiotic treatment. Have you seen that, that, it, that SIBO can then result after, after antibiotic use for acne? Absolutely. It's one of the well-established risk factors for SIBO is people who have had multiple courses of antibiotics. And it, you know, in some ways, it's strange we were talking about acne and taking antibiotics for our acne. Um, um, the thing is that the antibiotics that are prescribed for acne are not the ones that are effective in treating SIBO. So um, they actually just disrupt the balance of the gut bacteria and probably make us more prone to acne and to SIBO because the, the, the tetracycline antibiotics um, and others that are used in acne don't, don't work for SIBO. Mm, and when you're like someone like me who spent four or so years on, on those um, antibiotics, just cycling through them one after the other, um, you know, you can spend a long time taking antibiotics that are just causing great disruption. Right. Um, 
people want to know what they can do, if there's anything they can do topically to help relieve the burn or the itch or the dry flakiness that they might experience from some of these skin conditions. Do you have any topical treatments that you um, work with your patients with? Absolutely. It's a really good question because, you know, the idea with treating skin disease is that it needs to be treated both from the inside out and the outside in to really get good results. Um, for dry skin, one of the most important things is to restore the um, lack of, of, of uh, factors in the skin that maintain the water content. And the main thing that does that are compounds in the skin called ceramides. And so moisturizing creams and lotions that can contain ceramides are much more effective than older ones that don't have ceramides in them. So that would be one thing. Another is that taking omega-3 uh, supplementation orally will help to hydrate the skin as, as well um, by providing more fat to the skin that will make it more uh, likely to be able to maintain, again, the water content of the skin. Um, there are therapeutic products available too that uh, um, I use for these skin conditions that are typically herbal based. Um, I don't know, I guess this isn't really, I'm not bound by any restrictions about naming products on this podcast. No, you're so, not. You can name um, away. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, out of full disclosure, I will, I will disclose that I do consult for this company that is a, an Israeli company called Kametis, K-A-M-E-D-I-S. And they have a line of products that are actually therapeutic for eczema, another one for psoriasis. They have a, products for uh, acne and also for seborrheic dermatitis, which is uh, what commonly causes dandruff. And their products are herbal-based. They have ceramides in them, and they work really, really effectively, in some cases more effectively than you know something like a topical corticosteroid. So for the last four or five years, I've been using these products and getting great results. And um, they can be um, purchased uh, if you're a practitioner through a distributor. Like here in the U.S., we have a couple distributors, Emerson Ecologics and Natural Partners. And um, uh, for consumers, there's a uh, website that people can go to that is Cometis. Uh, I think it's dot or dash USA.com. Let me just check. And we'll put that um, link in the show notes so people can head to that. Yeah. Um, and that is, that, is, that, that is the website. Yeah. yeah. What about things like animal based um, topical creams, like tallow based skin creams? Um, can they be beneficial? They can be. Um, I don't have much experience using products like that, but, you know, tallow, lanolin, you know, other animal-based fats can be nourishing and definitely help prevent uh, dryness of the skin. It's interesting. I, um, Having had very oily skin for my whole life, I was always looking at how to strip all of this excess oil off my face because I felt like an oil slick. Uh, and a few years ago, I started using an uh, Australian brand called Ecology Skincare. It's a tallow-based skin cream. It's beautiful. And I... Um, the first few weeks, my skin felt really oily as my skin got used to having something that was a lot more natural rather than all of these harsh chemicals that I used to put on my face. And it's interesting that the, you know, I guess with the combination of my gut health improving, my diet improving, what I put on my skin improving, it has all, all of it has really helped to see my skin really calm down. And whilst I still definitely sit on the more oily side, um, I can put a much sort of richer product on my face now without looking like I've just <laughs> smeared oil all over it. <laughs> and yeah. What um, happens when, when, when we're an adolescent, um, because of our uh, sexual maturation, what we have is an overabundance of androgens like testosterone that really stimulate the oil production in our oil glands. And that's why we tend to have really oily skin when we're 
a teenager. But as we get older, our body adjusts to these higher levels of androgens, then it doesn't, it doesn't cause the overproduction of oil like it does when we're teenagers. Mm, that's good to know, but it's, it's not fun when you're the teenager with the very oily face. <laughs> it feels quite miserable. Um, another, I know. Another question I was asked by somebody was whether sulfur plays a part in skin issues. That's a really great great question because I think sulfur plays more of a role in our health and illness than most of us know. Um, and sulfur ha- uh, has been used um, in the past as a treatment for acne and also for other skin conditions like psoriasis. Um, but it's not something that I use uh, uh, at this time in my practice. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. afraid I don't have much more to say. Than sure. Um, now we we talked about. Uh, I asked the question around. You know, what should we treat first, the SIBO or the skin issues? And you and you said, you know, treating them both. But what's the risk if we don't treat one or the other? The risk is unsuccessful treatment. <laughs> Can it lead to more complications or more conditions appearing if we uh, don't uh, work on our gut health or the health of our skin? Well, I think it certainly can if we don't work on our gut health. Um, I don't think that you get complications from not working on your skin health so much. You just get persistence and worsening of the problem. And quite often, I think, a, um increase in negative emotions such as anxiety and depression over what you physically look like on the outside because that can be very stressful when people are looking at your skin and not really paying attention to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I know fact, that I one that, well. Yeah, me too. And I think from my own personal experience, you know, when I was a teenager and I had severe acne, I would look in the mirror and that's all I would see. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really seeing me, the person, and I would feel that that's all anybody else would see when they looked at me. But that, that's, un, that's not true. Most people, especially people who you, who, you know, are really good friends, they see the person. They don't see, you know, the, the skin problem. And uh, I think that that's something that is important for people with skin conditions to, to remember that, you know, there's more to them you know, as far as other people's perception of them than just their skin condition. Mm. It can make you feel like you are a walking leper though. And, um, and Absolutely. I, I know when I was, I actually have this written down in a diary from, from back when I was 15. And my wish was all I want is to have clear skin. That's all mm-hmm. I wanted in the world because it, I was just so covered in acne. And I would love to go back to that 15-year-old me and say, look, you get it. <laughs> it comes. So stop worrying about your, your skin so much. It, it will calm down. But, um, it, you know, it there's, felt there, awful there, at the time. There's actually a psychotherapeutic strategy to do that. You know, once you have seen that something that was really troubling you in the past has, has – uh, resolved to go back to that younger you and you know and talk to them and let them know because like I'm sure that I still carry some of the trauma that I experienced as a teenager where I was you know so uh, affected by my acne that it made me feel very insecure and and uh, you know it was not a happy time in my life and I think it was extremely traumatic for me. Mm, I've talked about um my own experience with quite a lot of trauma um, on previous podcasts. And one of the things that I have done with a psychologist that I've done some work with is go back, like you say, to that younger, the younger versions of myself at key points where trauma was occurring in my life. And, um, you know, really talking to that younger me and um, being, uh, um, you know, I guess a, a role model as the adult self now and really making peace with a lot of the demons that I've been carrying. And that's been very supportive um, therapy for me. And it's really helped me to release a lot of the burden that I've carried for many years with you know multiple things that happened to me. Um, and I really do think that um, seeking the services of someone that can help with you know psychological treatment can be so beneficial. 
And I didn't realize just how much of my psychological trauma was all sitting in my gut and how much anxiety uh, was still sitting in there because it was every day for me. So I just didn't really notice it because that was my norm. And then when I started to deal with it and it stopped being my norm, I was like, oh, gosh, I didn't realize how bad that was. <laughs> yeah. uh, whereas now if I ever, you know, things still flare up and I will take that practice and I will go back to the younger me and, we, you know, I'll kind of do that practice just quietly by myself. And I, I have found that very restorative and um, incredibly powerful to help me continue with this this long journey of healing that I'm currently on. Mm-hmm. I think that you you must have gone through a similar transformation as me when I was you know, a teenager, my skin condition made me very shy and inhibited and insecure. And as, as it cleared up and as I, I began to, you know, get into my 20s and, and you know, continue to evolve from then, you know, I've actually been, you know, come from being this kind of very uh, turned inward, introverted person um, to really like liking to be around people and being, you know, uh, there's a definitely an extroverted part of me now too. Mm. And that wasn't there at all before. I know if anyone saw me, if I was able to just plonk my earlier self next to my current self, it, I really would be chalk and cheese. People would be amazed at you know who I was then to who I am today, and it's a you know I'm really glad that I've had the opportunity to have the transformation as I'm sure you are as well. Dr. Michael Trobe, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. If people would like to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can go to my website, michaeltraubnd, as in naturopathicdoctor.com. And my email address is on there. It's relatively simple. Also, it's mtraub.com nd at me.com. Wonderful. And all of those links are in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you've answered so many of the questions that my listeners put forward. So thank you for your time. And uh, it's just been an honor to have you sharing your knowledge on all things gut health and skin diseases. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure. It's been nice to get to know each other better this way. It has. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Michael Traub. It's really interesting for me to see how much of the conditions that I experienced throughout my life were actually interconnected to what was happening with my gut. So as you've listened to this podcast, if there's somebody you know who is really suffering from skin issues, be it acne or rosacea or psoriasis or eczema, anything that, you know, particularly if it's causing them to feel uncomfortable or depressed or anxious, and I know I felt all of those things, I'd love for you to share this with them because it may just be that guiding light that they need to take some action and to figure out what might be the underlying cause of what's happening in their skin. If you would like to get uh, the show notes from today or any of the downloads, make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash skin. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, don't forget you can head to that page, thehealthygut.co forward slash skin to leave your feedback. I absolutely love seeing it there. Or you can leave it in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. It's great when you leave a rating and review. It really does help others to know that this is the right podcast for them. And make sure you head over to our Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, Twitter and Google Plus channels. We're active on all of them and we love seeing you there. We're always sharing new content and new information and it's great connecting with you there. So come say hi. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. On next week's show, it's a great topic. One again I experienced personally and that is is constipation. So many of us SIBOers, uh, you know, have to deal with just the pain and the suffering and the uncomfort of being constipated all the time. 
next week's episode, we're talking all about constipation with the lovely Linda Gripperich. And she talks about how you can do some things to help alleviate constipation and what she does with her patients to support their bowel movements. So not to be missed, guys. I really look forward to sharing that episode with you next week. See you then. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.